Hello, and welcome to another edition of the New and Living Way, a Hebrews podcast. I'm Ethan, very glad that you've joined us, and thank you for the gift of spending time as we continue to explore what God has made known through the Hebrews author. We continue in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews author uh, has concluded this magisterial section where he's gone through and looked at all of these uh, historical figures and all of the uh, many of the stories of the people of God in the past. And he did all of that in a way to encourage his audience regarding the cloud of witnesses that surrounds them. And he added a little twist to it. At the, at the end of that discourse, he says that all these, though commended by their faith, did not receive what was promised. That uh, without us, or apart from us, they would not be made perfect. And then he, having gone through all of those examples, in the beginning of chapter 12, then established that we are to run this race set before us, looking to Jesus. Yes, we've got this cloud of witnesses that surround us. Yes, we can draw encouragement from them and their example, but we need to look to Jesus. Looking to Jesus means that these others, and we could spend of our time going through and looking at all of their uh, mistakes and failures and why they are limited. Uh, We did not do so because that's not the way the Hebrew author framed it in chapter 11. But looking at that conclusion at the beginning of chapter 12, we can certainly understand and see that. But when we look at 12, 1 through 3, it is concluding what was said in chapter 11, which itself is kind of the explanation based on the end of chapter 10 about how we are to be the ones who live by faith, which is coming out of the whole discourse throughout the rest of the letter about the importance of uh, being continuing on, which the Hebrews author aptly uh, summarizes at the end of verse 3, uh, so that they may not grow weary or faint-hearted. His concern clearly that his audience may well be growing weary and faint-hearted. And in fact, when you tie together the exhortations in chapter 2 and 3 and 6 and 10, you certainly can come away with that conclusion, that these are Christians who've been Christians a while, their zeal has started to flag, they're growing, they're easily growing weary, they are tempted to give up. And so... Uh, This encouragement here is look at the faith of all of these people, but you need to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. And so 12, 1 through 3 is as much introducing the exhortation to follow as it is concluding what has been discussed beforehand. Because Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. 
and he suffered and was exalted. And so the Hebrews author is now going to look at the suffering and exaltation, particularly the suffering part, and to apply it directly to the circumstance that the Hebrews audience finds themselves in. And we can see this in, in the kind of little bit of shift in verse 3. 1 and 2, very much the hinge. 3, we're starting to definitely shift into this new context. To consider Jesus, him, who endured such hostility against himself from sinners. Uh, when you read the gospel story, you see this implacable hostility that Jesus engenders, even though Jesus is seeking to do his Father's will and to do good. No one argues about the good that he was doing to people, the casting out of demons, the healing. But his presence and his message is a threat to the power structure. It is a threat to every power structure. It's a threat to the power structure of the Romans. Uh, who used their power to put him on a cross to show what you do to people who would claim to be the king of the Jews. He is a threat to the power of the Herods and the other uh, government officials. He is a threat to the Sadducees and the, the temple authorities, and his purging of the temple is an exemplary example of that. He's also a threat to the Pharisees. The Pharisees may not have much political power, but they have this cloud among the people, and when Jesus teaches, and they can compare and contrast Jesus' disposition and, and, and teaching with that of the Pharisees, the Pharisees uh, seem to come up short. And so all of these are motivated to speak evil of Jesus. To you know, What he does, he does by the power of the evil one. To uh, try to get him in trouble with the people. And when all that fails, to kill him, to silence his voice. That doing what is right, Doing what is glorifies God is going to cause opposition and resistance in the world. And so the Hebrew Christians, whoever these, these people are he's writing to, uh, are experiencing this kind of difficulty. And so he's saying, consider that Jesus endured all of this and he was exalted. That you, you're following his example, you're following in his steps. Jesus himself put it so aptly. Uh, that if the disciple is not greater than his teacher, if they've called the, the master uh, Beelzebul, what are they going to consider his disciples? And that's exactly the way that it plays out in the story of early Christianity. And that's the way it has always been. When we faithfully stand for what God has accomplished in Jesus, it's going to engender opposition and hostility from the world. Uh, we shouldn't go out and look for it. We shouldn't go out and poke it and agitate it. But it's going to come as a consequence of us bearing witness for Jesus. And the reason why they look at him is because they should not grow faint or, or, or weary. And it's very easy to do that. And now he begins reframing their challenges to look at what they've gone through in a different way. And we're going to be very deliberate about this because there's been a very easy temptation to turn Hebrews 12, 4 through 11 into something that it's not. Uh, decontextualize it and turn it into God is punishing you because we see the word discipline. It's very important to see what verse 4 is about. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted the point of shedding your blood. Um, so much is made of this past verse for, for a lot of different reasons. Uh, it is suggested that this means that the Christians to whom the Hebrews author is writing have not 
died yet from persecution. That the persecution hasn't reached this this violent level yet. And it's a tempting conclusion to make, uh, but I'm not sure if it's warranted. It's true that the people to whom he's writing have not yet experienced that, but that doesn't mean that there were people before who hadn't done that. He's not going to write to the ones who had been martyred because they've already been martyred. Uh, Maybe this is a new generation, or maybe these are some who have come after, and they have not done that. But in the shedding of blood here, when you make it about persecution to death, you start making it about getting thrown to the lions. But the Hebrews author isn't putting us in that position. He's still in the realm of the athletic contest, that struggle against sin, uh, the antagonizomai going on here, the same word antagonist in English, uh, the opponent. That's the verb uh, lift, being uh, doing the lifting here. It's still within the realm of the athletic contest. So in verse 1, we ran the race. Uh, which is one of the athletic competitions. Another one of the athletic competitions, of course, would be wrestling or boxing. And um, in, especially in boxing, um, when you get into the ring and you're boxing, there's, you, know, you get to a point where there's going to be bloodshed. And what the Hebrews author is saying is that they have not yet really entered the ring in their struggle against sin and reach that point. That's another important point to notice. He doesn't say that in your faithful witness you have not yet reached the point of shedding your blood. It's that they haven't shed their blood in their struggle against sin. So we got to be let the Hebrews author say what his point is, which is he's not talking about what the people of the world are going to do to you, what the force of evil are going to do to you. It's in the contest with sin. In their grappling with sin, they've not yet had some of their teeth knocked out, so to speak. They haven't punched back and forth yet enough about that in order to get to this much more severe place. And this leads right into uh, this exhortation, which is a quotation from Proverbs chapter 3. Uh, and the question is, at the beginning of verse 5, is it a declaration or is it a question? Uh, in the end, the point is pretty much the same. It's just in how it's framed. Is it, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as the English Standard has it, and the NET and many new translations? Or is it like in the American Standard, you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Considering the rhetorical purposes of the Hebrews author, I believe that the question framework is probably the most faithful to his purposes because it introduces the idea without being as much of a chastisement. Uh, And he says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, or be weary when reproved by him, uh, that the Lord disciplines the one that he loves, and that he uh, chastises every son that he receives. And, again, this is uh, Solomon's exhortation. Um, From the uh, Hebrew text, this is, of course, from the Greek, the Hebrew, uh, do not despise discipline from Yahweh, do not loathe his rebuke, for Yahweh disciplines those he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. Um, that the Septuagint's going in a slightly different direction at the end there, uh, but the Hebrews author is keeping the whole thing together, considering that what is going to be his, his first example uh, is going to be that, you know, second example, excuse me, that we have these... Um, 
uh, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us as they seemed right, and we respected them. So we see the, the, the parallel is still being given there. And it's very important we look at what's going on here and keep in our mind fundamentally what he's doing with this exhortation. And we need to see it there in uh, the fact that we, what, what they are experiencing is what the discipline is. That what they are experiencing is the form of discipline that they're going through. This is not God is going to punish you because you've done bad things. Now, Hebrews author is not going to doubt, we're not going to doubt, that when the people of God sin, just like when people in the world sin, there are consequences to that. Sometimes that, those consequences that we see as punishments come at us in real time, during our lives on earth. It's not just going to be at the judgment. That is not at all what the Hebrews author is getting at here. Uh, the Hebrews author is looking and saying, it is for discipline that you are enduring because God is treating you as sons. What they're going through is difficult. The Hebrews author has never tried to diminish that he is saying, however, that it could be worse. That's going to the fact that they haven't yet shed their blood. That it could be worse. You could have worse consequences than you're dealing with now. And so it's kind of hard balance to keep. First of all, not to minimize the very real challenges that might lead them to give up. And you, especially when there's somebody in, in the depths of the mire, so to speak, telling them that there's even more mire underneath them isn't necessarily going to be the most encouraging thing. Uh, but at the same time, there does need to be that reorientation of thinking that as bad as you have it, it could be worse. So what is going on? What, what are they going through? What they're going through is discipline. And really, this is not terribly different from what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he talks about running the race, but the focus of his running the race and also, he boxes as not beating the air. So we have right there also, not just the race running, but also the boxing going on. The idea that uh, you need to be disciplined. You need to ex go through training. Um, any athlete's going to tell you that they need to maintain a regimen. And that regimen is a pretty holistic regimen. Uh, where the athlete sleeps a certain amount of time. His or her diet is going to be very restricted. They're going to be eating certain kinds of foods. They're going to avoid certain kinds of foods. If they, they need to spend certain amount of time in, in exercise, and they do certain exercises that, that focus on certain muscle groups based upon uh, how they're going to compete. Uh, and if they there might be a little bit of cheat room, but it's not going to be a very large window because if they slack off on their sleep, get too much sleep, if they start eating some things they shouldn't eat, it's really going to affect their performance. They need to maintain those boundaries. And that's what discipline really is here, is boundaries. Far too long we've had in our minds discipline equals punishment because we look at the fact that in discipline, if you're going to maintain a discipline, there needs to be some kind of consequences for going outside of the boundaries and that's what we focus on in terms of discipline. <clears throat> and of course, that is very much in view to a degree here, because he uses the example of earthly fathers disciplined us as they thought best. And when we think about how our earthly fathers disciplined us, we generally focus more on the negative consequences of our behaviors 
rather than the times they praised us and celebrated us for the good that we were able to accomplish. What the Hebrews author is really focusing on is the fact that as we matured, we recognized, you know, yes, there were ways in which the, the, the discipline we received was unhelpful, uh, especially we didn't like it at the time. That final argument the Hebrews author is making here uh, is a very important one. A recognition and a confession. Look, this isn't fun. No one enjoys discipline. But when you get older, you realize after you've gone through the discipline why the discipline was so necessary and that you would have been a much worse person had you not experienced it. And that's a big issue, that without that discipline, you would be wild. You would be as an illegitimate child. This is the framework the Hebrews author is using at his time. Um, in his time, there was a very strong concern about legitimacy in terms of the fact that a man would have some children with his wife, those children would be those who would inherit his estate, who would carry on the name, and therefore the one in whom he invested his time and resources. Uh, those who would be trained, would be educated if, if he had the means to do so, and the one whose conduct would speak uh, regarding uh, him and, and, and everything he's about. This is the kind of whole point of Proverbs, is really providing that kind of instruction to a son. Now, uh, men back then had many dalliances outside of the, the confines of marriage, and that would often lead to children. They may provide some money for the, that woman to raise that child, but they would not be invested in that child's instruction. And therefore, those would be the illegitimate children. That their, wh Whatever they would come up to be uh, would not be expected to be much of anything. In fact, uh, the term bastard, which is what an illegitimate child is, maintains its um, kind of curse connotation because it is degrading to a person's uh, heritage, uh, but also because there was a whole range of, of um, behaviors that were associated with bastardy. And those range of behaviors came from the fact that they were wild, they were mostly poor, or they uh, did not have anyone who really cared about how they turned out, and it became obvious in the way that they behaved. And so the Hebrews authors is using that as an illustration to talk about what happens when a child does not have that discipline. They turn out to be uh, like illegitimate children. And so if you are sons of your father, the father is going to invest in you. And the way the father invests in you is, yes, he's going to provide you with what you need, but you're going to go through situations where your character is going to be forged. And you, know, you see this in your life, you can see this in everybody's life, that it is through hardship, through difficulty, through failure, that we really learn and grow in character. That success, like knowledge, puffs up, it's failure, it's weakness, it's limitation that teaches us the humility and the characteristics of God that we should be uh, maintaining. And so, that's why he's focusing on the fact that he's, he's taking these experiences the Hebrews audience is going through, the pressures they're feeling in society, the suffering that's causing, which might be um, insults, it might be um, not as easy to function society, certainly has probably an economic impact, and he's saying that this is helping to train you, that this is helping you grow in holiness, uh, that it's not fun, but it's going to lead to that peaceful fruit of righteousness or peace in righteousness. It's providing a, a reason to maintain a good standing before God and also 
uh, to be righteous and faithful. And so maybe training is the really best way of looking at this, since discipline is so often seen in terms of punishment, even though, again, uh, they are very similar in, in connotation. We can use either word. Uh, maybe training doesn't have the same uh, connotation for many people as discipline does to understand what the Hebrews author is talking about and that it's what they're going through. It's not an additional set of burdens. Uh, the Hebrews author is not doing some simplistic, God is punishing you so you grow from it, but God is allowing the circumstances in which you find yourself, which are distressing, he allows you to endure that, that you learn by it to grow more holy and closer to him uh, because of what you are enduring. And it's that reframing of what they're going through, which is really important for them to be able to not grow weary and faint-hearted, to not think God has abandoned them, but to see rightly that God is treating them as sons, trying to help them grow in their righteousness, and that it's not going to be easy. And we can take that same lesson as well. We look forward to continuing on in Hebrews in the future, Lord willing, and we pray that the Lord will bless and keep you until then. Music